Well, good morning. It's um, great to be here with you. It's, um, yeah, it is so good. Gee, you've got a good group of musos, haven't you? It is such a blessing. It is such a blessing. I was sitting there thinking, my goodness, that sounds like I'm listening to a CD. It's re- you're very blessed. So thank you. Thank you, guys. It's, um, as Joel mentioned, he, he's asked me to speak to you today, today from Psalm 51. We've just been singing there a, a little bit of it. And, and I understand we'll be bringing this series after God's own heart to a, a close. So as we prepare to do that, let's, um, let's bow and pray, and then I'll read to you this psalm. Lord, it's been good to worship you in song. And now, Lord, we want to worship you by stilling our hearts and minds, and we, we ask that you would enable that you would help us to do that to focus on your word your ancient word here today these words that have really stood the test of time and we pray lord that we would have hearts and minds open to what your spirit would say to us lord i pray that somehow your spirit would work between what i'm saying and what we hear and that you would allow us to hear exactly what you would have to say to us as individuals from your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let me read to you Psalm 51. It will be up here, I believe, or you may open it in your Bible. For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge." Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God. The God who saves me and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, 
Make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. All scripture is God-breathed, eternal, significant, important. But there are some passages of scripture which just seem to fall into a different category. There are some passages which are just essential. These are the kind of passages that Christians down through the ages have shared with new believers with great enthusiasm and excitement saying, you've just got to see this. You've got to see this. You've just got to allow the truths in this passage to impact your heart and mind. Your whole outlook on life will be changed by hearing these words of God. You know, I remember some years ago leading a discipleship group which met in our home each week and these were all new believers who really had no previous access to Christians or to the Word of God. And this particular night, we were, were making our way through the parable of the prodigal son. And as we came, as we came to, this, um, to this point, we're making our way through it and one of the members of the group, a very intelligent, a clever guy, a software engineer, that he's got a really quick mind, and he raced ahead in his thinking, and he just said, so, so this is saying, if you take your inheritance early, you end up eating pig food. And you can imagine, as the group leader, I'm trying to be you know, diplomatic, inclusive, I went... Yeah, and I started thinking. Okay, he's, he's kind of reading it like a, he's reading it like a, like a proverb, and and then I just went. He doesn't know the end of the story. It's like it just dawned on me. He doesn't know the end of the story. How can he not know the end of the prodigal son story? Of course, he doesn't know the story. How could he know the story? He never went to church. His parents never went to church. And as I looked around the group, I realised none of them know the story. (laughs) Turn the page. Turn the page. You've got to hear the end of the story. (laughs) And it was... I'm getting emotional thinking about it because it was just awesome. You know, to be there, when people go, oh, this is what God is like. It was a really amazing time, you know. And Psalm 51 falls into that category. It really does. You've just got to know. <laughs> You've got to know Psalm 51. Psalm 51 will change your life. But you've got to keep coming back. To Psalm 51. See, every, every psalm is special. It is. Every psalm is special. But when we read this psalm, it's like we, we have somehow stumbled upon holy ground. I mean, it's about, it's about confession of sin. It is, it's the great kind of bit of literature about Penance, you know, like confession, it is, it really is, which is essential to the journey of faith. 
but it's actually the revelation about the nature of God as the confessor stands before him. Yeah, which is just so profound, so so life-changing. Now, I'm going to speak of David as being the one confessing, simply because the the biblical text includes that information in the superscription, which I read, because that's actually in the text. However, I would point out that a number of eminent scholars make pretty convincing arguments for the psalm being written actually hundreds of years after the death of David after the fall of Jerusalem in in 597 BC, during the time of the exile. There there are some really significant parallels between this psalm and the prophetic writings of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, which support this thinking. That said, all we have to go on is the text. I mean, it's an ancient text, which, as I prayed, it has stood the test of time. I mean, here we are, thousands of years later, talking about it. You guys are sitting here listening to me talk about it. The text says that it is a psalm of David, written in response to the word of the Lord from Nathan to David, regarding this appalling treatment of Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. David prays, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. David prays for mercy. And and as as I've often said to to people over the years, mercy is, is one of the responses that we can actually expect from God. We can expect him to be merciful with us. Simply because throughout the scriptures, God reveals himself as one who is consistently showing mercy to repentant sinners. And this is exactly what David asks for, mercy. But then he reinforces his request by adding, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Now the Hebrew word that our English translation renders as unfailing love is hesed, or it's kind of like a K at the start, hesed, right? Hesed is a, is a special kind of love. It, it's a loyal love. It, it's a loving responsibility that is willingly assumed by someone, knowing that the one loved in this way is totally dependent on the continuing love of the other. There, there's an obligation to deal with anything, even including guilt that threatens the welfare of the individual or people loved in this way. And this is what David is asking for. He's he's saying, God, I need your mercy. According to your willingly assumed and publicly declared hesed, your loyal love for me. And then he adds, according to your great compassion... Now, the root word there, see, words matter. They really do. They really do, especially when we're dealing with translations. The root word for compassion actually means womb, right? That the form used here suggests the love a mother has for the child of her womb. You know, over the years, I've known a number of people whose continuing love for their child, despite terrible ongoing abuse from the child to the parent. I mean, really appalling behaviour. 
has simply astounded me. These people just keep on forgiving, they just keep on loving their child regardless of what they do and how they treat them. And this is exactly what David appeals to, the love and compassion God has for his dearly loved child who keeps on rebelling. And it's interesting that David actually experienced this, didn't he, in his life? You know, his sons at times, particularly one of them, treated him very, very poorly. But what a wonderful truth about God revealed to us today from these ancient words, that we may approach God asking for mercy according to his hesed, his loyal love for us, and according to his great compassion for us, his love for us, which a mother's love is a mere shadow of. Now, if you're thinking for a moment that, well, that's David. God really loves David like that, but he doesn't necessarily love me like that. Let me tell you that everything that is promised David in the Psalms is inherited by who? By Jesus. Everything that is promised to David ends up coming down to Jesus. And you know, on the very last page of the Bible, when Jesus, you know, what's what the last thing that he is going to say on the last page of Revelation? Jesus actually says, I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. You see, everything he has promised David is given to Jesus and everyone who is in Christ comes into that inheritance as well. You've just got to know that. You see, that kind of truth will change your life. You need to know that deep within you. The whole world needs to know that truth about God. But see, David then gets to the real action required, the thing he needs God to do for him. You see, said or loyal love, is a love that actually does something. It's a love that makes things happen. What does David want? David wants the record of his transgressions blotted out. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, he prays. Now those three verbs that are there, blot out or obliterate, wash away and cleanse, they're really significant. They have really kind of important links into the history and the ritual life of of Israel. In the books of Exodus and Numbers, a number of times we find God declaring that he will wipe out certain people groups and names from under heaven. In the same way, David wants the clay tablet, as it were, that has the record of his sins. He wants that obliterated. He wants it smashed. He wants it just annihilated into little pieces. He wants it blotted out from under heaven. He wants his iniquity washed away. You know, the, the term that he chose to use there, use there is directly derived from that humble domestic duty of washing clothes. Of course, at this time, washing clothes required a little bit more than kind of putting a bit of detergent in and pressing go. It really did. I mean, washing clothes involved work. Lots of really quite violent, energetic, beating, stomping, pummeling, scrubbing work. David asks for this. 
anything to be washed of his iniquity. Wash me, Lord. Wash every bit of filth from me. Finally, he says, cleanse me from my sins. Now, in the Old Testament, uncleanness is what disqualified a person from participation in sacrificial ritual. And as a result, excluded somebody from the presence of God. A person could not worship God when they had done certain things. Like, for instance, touching a corpse would cause one to become unclean. If one developed a skin disease, leprosy or eczema, or a man had a discharge, or a woman was experiencing her her monthly period, they were considered ritually unclean. David wants to be ritually and literally cleansed of his sin. Now I want you to notice that each of these three verbs for forgiveness is actually matched by three words for sin. And these are really important also for us to understand. Blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. See, all sin is serious. As Christ follows, we, we need to take sin seriously. And that means we need to understand the nature and the character of sin. The psalmist's choice of words here help us to do that. David says, blot out my transgressions. Now, the Hebrew word he chose points to willful, defiant, self-assertive rebellion and revolt against God. David is saying, blot out the fact that I shook my fist in your face, deliberately rebelling against you. You know, the the more I've thought about this, the more I've realised that this is so much the way of sin. Is it not? Rebellion against God and his ways is at the very core of sin. It certainly seems to have been the case with Lucifer when he was expelled from heaven. And it certainly was the case when Adam and Eve disobeyed the Lord, eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. And when the Holy Spirit comes to live within us, one of the things that he promises to do for us is to alert us to sin in our life. He convicts us of sin so that we might turn from it. His ultimate goal is to actually shape our character slowly but surely so that it becomes more and more like the character of Jesus. We need to know that when we're walking in ways that are not as God would have us walk, we need to know that. Whenever we say no to God's Holy Spirit, as he gently does this, as he convicts us of sin, whenever we say no, we are shaking our fist in God's face. We rebel against his authority and rule. Now, iniquity in English refers to grossly immoral or unfair behaviour. But the original Greek word here has more to do with deviating from a path, walking or wandering away. And it's the same with sin in the Old Testament. It's always associated with veering off the road that God wants us to travel. It's a revolt of the human will against God's will. You know, I've often said to people, whenever you turn away from God, whenever you walk away from him, like, if, you know, if this is God, and whenever we turn and walk away from him, we walk out into darkness and death and despair and unforgiveness and ungrace. But the path to God is always the best path. 
And that's what sin is, I think. When we turn, we shake our fist in his face and we turn and we walk the other way because he is the source of all that is good. And anything, when we walk away from that, we are separated from all that is loving and gracious, forgiving, alive. Because he is the source of life. He is the source of all things that is good. I think that image captures well the the notion of iniquity and sin. But the good news is that we can come to God. We can turn back to him. We can literally turn our path back to him, confessing our sin knowing, expecting that he will be merciful and compassionate with us. Thank God for that. Hallelujah. Amen. Immediately David moves to confession. And it's a very self-aware, deeply personal confession. I want you to see that David owns his sin fully. You know, so often we confess, don't we, to things. You know, we kind of agree with God. But we follow with but, or you understand that it was because. There's not a hint of that. There's not a hint of that here with David. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Now we read in 2 Samuel 11, this is the passage which, which actually records the events surrounding David's sin with Bathsheba and the, the subsequent murder of Uriah. These are the events which led to the writing of this psalm, the praying of this prayer. Now I know you guys looked at this last week. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. So after Uriah was killed, Bathsheba mourned for him. The traditional time for Jewish, you know, Jewish time for mourning for a dead husband was 30 days. So David couldn't marry Bathsheba for at least 30 days. She then had to fall pregnant and eventually give birth to the child. Point is, by the time Nathan came to confront David, probably about a year has passed, kind of minimum, I mean, possibly two years. David had been living with the guilt for some time. His wife and child were constantly before him, subconsciously reminding him of the the dreadful things that he had done. And they were, they were... Just it's when you think it through and you think of the powerlessness of this woman before the king. These are dreadful things that happened. There was another source of conflict, of conviction though, I think. Another source of psychological distress. The spirit of God himself. You see, see we read in 1 Samuel 16 about the... The prophet Samuel, this is right back in the beginning, anointing David. And it says there in verse 13, So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, anointed David in the presence of his brothers. And from that day, the Spirit of the Lord, it says, rushed upon him, came upon him in power. 
Now, as I've just said, we, we know that God's Holy Spirit convicts us of sin in our life so that we might confess, so that we, we may be right with God. The Holy Spirit is given to all who are in Christ. But in the days of the Old Testament, this was not the case. God's Spirit came upon a very select few, it seems. David was one of the few. The text says that as Samuel anointed him, God's Spirit rushed upon him in power. I've no doubt that David was racked with guilt over what he had done. I'm sure that as that baby grew in Bathsheba's womb, the sense of guilt grew as well. I have no doubt that that was an awful year for David. And we hear this in his, in his prayer. Remember, the, the Hebrew word for transgression means willful, defiant, self-assertive, rebellion and revolt against God. David is praying, I know I have rebelled against you. I know that I have shaken my fist in your face and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, as a younger person reading this psalm, I always wondered at David's words here. I mean, surely David did not only sin against God. Surely David sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba. Surely David sinned against all the men who died that day in battle. Surely. There was a whole lot of people impacted by David's sin as he tried to cover up this appalling rape of a married woman. But, you know, as I've got older, I understand a little bit more fully the nature of sin. I've come to see that regardless of how we may speak of sin today, from the very earliest times in Israel, sins against persons were, in fact, sins against God. We may do evil against another, but in doing so, we sin against God and God alone. Verse 4 says, So that you are proved right when you speak, and justified when you judge. I can't help feeling that David is alluding here to the whispers of the Spirit of God in the dead of the night, judging, convicting, harassing, tormenting. Ironically, David's initial, initial ministry to King Saul many years earlier was to soothe him by playing his harp when a tormenting spirit sent from the Lord came upon Saul. It now seems that David has been dealing with his own tormenting spirit sent from the Lord. I want you to notice the difference between the way the two men respond to this convicting, tormenting spirit of God. Saul, on one hand, continued to rebel against God. Saul continued to shake his fist at God. And as a result, his life spiralled into total chaos, eventually ending in a violent, suicidal death while fighting the Philistines. David, on the other hand, he found forgiveness, joy, and many years of ongoing significant ministry. It says that he became a lamp unto his people despite living with the consequences of his sin. I mean, the child died. 
the child died. The sword never left his house. He lived with violence surrounding him, even when his own family, for many years. But I want you to notice how God spoke about David many years after his death. See, in his rebuke of the evil king Jeroboam, that is David's great-grandson, found in 1 Kings 14, the Lord says this. He says to Jeroboam, You are not like my servant David, who always obeyed my commands and followed me with all his heart. He did only what I said was right. Is God getting a little bit demented? (laughs) I mean, for goodness sake, it's written down there. It's actually in the word of God. Did God forget? A couple of generations later and God's, oh, I can't really remember. There was something that happened. No, I think what we're seeing here is God sees everything, but he chooses to put my sins as far as the east is from the west. And that's what we see with David, isn't it? This is the outcome of a repentant heart. The truly amazing testimony of David's life is that after his great sin, he repented. And because of his deep repentance, without making any excuses, God extended grace and forgiveness and remembered his sins no more, even though they are recorded in the word of God. But here's the kicker. And we must know this truth. David and his family experienced the tragic consequences of his sin until the day of his death. David was forgiven, washed white as snow, but they all, the whole nation, lived with the consequences of his sin. David's first child born to Bathsheba, that child that was in that womb growing in that year, died. David's daughter Tamar was raped by her half-brother Amnon. Absalom, David's son, Tamar's brother, murdered Amnon. Absalom rebelled against David, slept with his concubines, and everyone knew about it, just as the Lord said they would. Absalom then attempted to dethrone David, his father, and was murdered in the process. The kingdom, north and south, once unified, fragmented. You just need to know this truth in your life. You can be washed clean. You can be completely forgiven, as white as snow. As we sung, the Lord will create in you a clean heart and renew a right spirit within you. Know that. For that is the good news. That's very important. That is the gospel. Because of what Christ did for you on the cross, your sins can be forgiven and the the ultimate consequences of your sins have been placed on Jesus. But there will be consequences in your life, just as there were for David and all those who were directly impacted by his sin. And you may well have to live with the consequences of those sins until the day you die. You know, having ministered with young people for decades, you end up kind of following people on journeys, don't you? That you know, there's a decision made on one night. Often it was a night of drunkenness or too many drugs. 
and things happen. People have terrible car accidents and they live with the wounds of that and the people they kill in those car accidents are dead. And the families of those killed people live with that pain and suffering for years. I've known more than one you know, young girl who just says, oh, there's this one night. I've ended up pregnant and I really don't want to get rid of this baby. I just want this baby. But they live with that baby. They become a Christian. You baptise them. You, you, know, you kind of lead them in discipleship groups and all that. But they live with the consequences of their sin. Do you see what I'm saying? This is what David was talking about. I think that's what he means in verse 12 when he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. You know, we sing the song, Create in me a clean heart, like we did those words, and renew a right spirit within me. You know, the Hebrew is just as rightly translated and give me a, a, a spirit over me. Like it's the same word, for spirit there and it's like is it God's spirit or his spirit I kind of lean myself towards I want God's spirit over me helping me to deal with the consequences of my sin even though I'm forgiven washed clean and I think that's what David is asking the Lord to sustain him through the consequences of his sin and we've got to do the same thing Verse 13, he says, Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will turn back to you. What will he teach the transgressors? These people who rebel, remember, rebel against God and shake their fist in his face, just as David did. He will teach them that God is gracious and forgiving towards sinners. He will teach them about God's hesed, his loyal love for them. He would teach them about God's great compassion and motherly love for them. And then he says, save me from blood guilt, O God. The God who saves me and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. I don't know whether you've ever noticed, but in the Old Testament, you know, there's some... There's a lot of stuff written about law and sacrifice, isn't there? You go through Leviticus and, oh, it's just... It's like everything's covered. You know, if this happens, do this, that, that, It's very, very clear. You know, there's no sacrifice for sin of murder. There's no sacrifice for adultery. Blood guilt. Put them to death. Put the murderer to death. Put the adulteress to death. Put the one who commits adultery to death. I think David knows this. And this is why he pleads for mercy. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You did not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. David knows there aren't any sacrifices that are going to deal with his sin. David knows that the blood of sacrificial animals, regardless of their number, I mean, he's the king, he could kill every animal in the kingdom. He knows it would make no difference. He is guilty and the only acceptable response is confession. 
I mean, this is the key verse of this psalm, in my opinion. And it was most likely David's closing statement in his prayer. The final two verses appear to have been added some, like after the exile as the whole nation came to terms with their rebellion against God, corporately. And they probably prayed this prayer as part of their ritual. But on a very personal level, David finally prays. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Nothing else will do. The only sacrifice that God is pleased with is the sacrifice of your own self to him, the sacrifice of your self-will and self-importance to him. Which, if you think about it, is ultimately what Jesus did for each of us as he offered the final sacrifice. You know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he is so anxious, he's sweating blood, looking for a way out. He prays eventually, not my will, but yours be done. The creator of the universe is humiliated beyond belief. That's what he offers. I mean, David lived before the cross, we live after the cross. Yet our response to God, and specifically to Jesus' sacrifice, however, should be the same. A broken and a contrite heart is the key. And of course, Paul would later urge the Romans to offer their bodies as living sacrifices to God, as true and proper response and worship to God. I'll finish today with the word of the Lord as it came through the prophet Isaiah. This is the last chapter of the book of Isaiah, chapter 66, verse 1. I think it encapsulates all this really, really well. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where, is my, where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things and so they came into being, declares the Lord. So he says, this is how great I am. This is how great I am. Then he makes this amazing statement. The God who inhabits his universe like we inhabit our body says, this is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in heart, in spirit, and trembles at my word. You know, I was just reading some stuff on Facebook, some comments, some from some friends recently and you know they were arguing about what what's biblical what's not you know and someone said well I'm not biblical then I feel and I thought yeah that just that kind of encapsulates it doesn't it that I think today we can be so wrapped up in what we feel about things that we actually not worry about what the Bible teaches us I don't know there's all the interpretation stuff. But at the end of the day, 
What God says matters. So you want to take really seriously what God says. Because he says, this is the one I esteem. He was humble, contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. Amen? Amen. Okay. Thanks, John.